Let's pray together. Father, would you in these moments prepare our hearts and our minds that we might receive your word? Would you give us ears to hear it? And would you refresh us and convict us and comfort us with it? As always, attend to me, please, as I do this work that you've called me to do. Um, keep me in tune with you as I do it. And I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Has anyone ever shown up to your house unannounced? Have you ever shown up to someone else's house unannounced? Probably not if someone has shown up to your house unannounced. Um, Most of us don't like people showing up unannounced uh, without any advance notice. Uh, We like being able to prepare. Uh, We like the anticipation of their arrival, knowing that they're coming. We like the anticipation more than we like the surprise. I'll put it that way. And that's really what this season of Advent's all about. It's about preparation. It's about anticipation. It's about looking forward and and celebrating. It's about looking forward to, and it's about celebrating the announced arrival of our Savior, His first coming. We're we're celebrating and and we're making ourselves ready, not just celebrating and or not just celebrating his announced arrival, but we're also anticipating and looking forward to and preparing ourselves for a second coming, which has also been foretold. And I say that his arrival was announced because, uh, to borrow the words of Paul David Tripp. A company of prophets spoke a myriad of prophecies that not only pointed to the surety of his coming, but also made specific promises his coming would produce. And we're going to look at one of those prophecies this morning. We've just heard them read by Grant. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 and then put your finger there or that little red tab in your Bible that's uh, provided for you. Put it there, and then flip back to Isaiah chapter 7, where we're going to start. In our outline this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the threat, the promise, and the sign. Let's begin in verse 1 of Isaiah 7 with the threat. A little history here. Um, After King Solomon's death in 931 B.C., the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, The northern kingdom included ten tribes that followed Jeroboam, uh, that was called Israel, or uh, also called Ephraim, which is a name that should be familiar to us over the last few chapters of Genesis that we have been studying over the last few weeks. Um, Two tribes, the two tribes that remained became the southern kingdom, and they uh, were led by Rehoboam, and it was called Judah. And our text in Isaiah 7 picks up around 734, 735 B.C. when the king of Israel, or Ephraim, whose name was King Pekah, had decided that he did not want to pay the tribute that his predecessor had been paying to the king of Assyria. And of course, you can imagine that the king of Assyria wasn't too pleased 
With that, uh, the tribute was being paid so that he wouldn't invade. And so when Pekah decided he didn't want to do that anymore, um, the king of Assyria decided that he would carry out a lesson, so to speak, and show that this was a bad decision. And so Pekah decided, having heard that he was going to invade, Pekah decided to form an, an alliance with the king of Syria. And then the two of them sought to recruit Ahaz. They wanted him to be a part of, uh, of their little alliance that would battle Assyria. Um, they, uh, Ahaz decides he, um, if, if, if he, well, because he refused, they decide they're going to then eva- uh, invade Judah and install a puppet king so that they can uh, take care of, of the king of Assyria. And verse 2 tells us that Ahaz and the people of Judah uh, heard of the news of this impending invasion from these two kings, and they begin to get worried, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, they felt the threat. They began to be fearful. There was even a little bit of panic and paranoia on their part, uh, uneasiness and unrest. But really, they didn't even have a clue as to the extent of the threat that they were facing, because the reality was the possible attack from the north paled in comparison to the judgment of God that was impending due to um, their sin and due to King Ahaz's faithlessness and self-sufficiency. And you can read about that in verses 18 to 25. Now, if we pause long enough to assess the world in which we live now at the end of, believe it or not, 2023, and looking into 2024, we can admit that there are threats that we face, threats that we face from outside and inside. We face threats from the outside, and of course, we can speak of Countries like Russia, maybe China, North Korea, um, or at least that's what we're told. But the inner threats, the, those threats inside, the, the threats of implosion seem to be even greater. They, they seem to be more prolific. We think of political partisanship and vitriol. Uh, we think of the volatility of the stock market and, and the up and down nature of the unemployment uh, trends and We think of inflation, um, the volatility of the stock market, um, the economic flux and the volatility. But then even more than that, we're dealing with things like rampant sexual sin and gender confusion. We're dealing with racial tension and human trafficking and, and abortion and gratuitous violence. And the more we think about it, the more we can become overwhelmed, we can We think of the chaos, and we can begin to develop a, maybe even a hopelessness. And then we add to that, not only, even though we as a Western church don't experience any life-threatening persecution like our brothers and sisters around the world, there's, there's no doubt that there's a growing animosity and even a hatred in our country for Christ and His church. 
And so over and over, we're just, we're inundated with these things. And again, we feel the chaos and it, and it leads to the feelings of being out of control. And like the people of Judah, those, those threats, both externally and internally, pale in comparison to the judgment of God that is to come. We, we fear and we worry and we're anxious we're uneasy and we're at unrest. It seems to be the norm. But brothers and sisters, there's hope. Right? There's that, that, that definitely feels heavy, but there's hope because of the promise. Look at verse 3. The Lord sent Isaiah to talk to Ahaz and um, who he sent with him and where they were to meet Ahaz was almost as important as what he was to say. Notice first that Isaiah was to take his son, and his son's name means a remnant shall return or a remnant shall repent. Either way, his son was basically a walking billboard, and his message was twofold. One, the first side of the message was God was in fact pronouncing judgment, and many were not going to survive. So it was bad news. But the flip side of that, there was also good news. The other side was God is faithful and there will be a remnant that will remain. So it was a name that was a subtle reminder that there would be disaster and there would be survival. There would be blessing and there would be cursing. There would be judgment and there would be hope of a promise kept. Secondly, notice where they went to meet Ahaz. Verse 3 says that he had gone to the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field. In other words, there's impending danger. There's the, the, the attack is imminent, so he's gone to the water supply because it was going to be a place of vulnerability. And it's there that, uh, in the words of Derek Thomas, it's there at the weakest point that God ensured its strength. And it's there that we see what Isaiah actually says. God told Isaiah to tell Ahaz to be careful, to be quiet, to not fear, and to not let his heart be faint. There are a couple things within the message that are important. One, God wanted Isaiah to tell Ahaz to, to watch out for his enemies, but at the same time, not to worry. Don't worry. And secondly, he wanted him to be careful not to do anything rash. Because the problem was Ahaz was contemplating taking things into his own hands. He was going to do things his way. And, and what he had decided to do was he was going to form an alliance with Assyria. In his mind, the, the whole the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing was actually supposed to work. And God through Isaiah was saying, yes, you have enemies. And yes, they're plotting against you. But they're simply blowing smoke. There's no fire. Um, they're smoldering sticks. In other words, Ahaz, don't worry about them. Don't be concerned about them at all, because as a matter of fact, they, they, not only do they not have any power, but in 65 years, they're not going to exist. 
So there was a, a right way for Ahaz to do things, and there was a wrong way for Ahaz to do things. There was a right way to handle it and a wrong way to handle it. And the way not to handle it was by forming an alliance with Assyria. Because by forming an alliance with Assyria, what he was really doing is trusting in himself, in his own political prowess, in his own self-sufficiency. Because really, humanly speaking, the bigger threat was actually Assyria. But the issue was even, was even greater spiritually. So the Lord was telling him, through Isaiah and his son standing there, he said, you need to trust the Lord. Because what you're contemplating is a lack of trust in the Lord. There was a better way to handle it. Trust in the Lord and His promises. And in verse 9, the bottom line couldn't be clear. He said, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And really the opposite is true as well. If you are firm in the faith, you will be firm completely. The Lord was giving Ahaz the opportunity to trust in him. He could trust in the fact, because remember who Ahaz is. The Lord was giving him the opportunity to trust in the fact that he was in the line of Judah, the promised line of Judah, the promised line of Judah that had been promised, the the line of David that had been promised an everlasting reign. And so he was giving Ahaz the opportunity to trust in that fact that there were no enemies powerful than the power of God. He was giving Ahaz the opportunity to trust in the fact that regardless of what happened, that a remnant would be saved. And he was really letting Ahaz know, and you'll be a part of that remnant. Because the truth of the matter was, if he didn't put faith in the Lord, he would forfeit everything. And the consequences would be felt for generations to come. And of course, the questions in the message are the same for us today, because we have the same tendency to give in to our natural bent, which is to trust in ourselves, in our own self-sufficiency, right? We can focus on our circumstances, and they can overwhelm us, they overwhelm us to the point that we do things and say things that we shouldn't do and say. And we rely on ourselves and what we can do because we think somehow that we would avoid the hopelessness. And so we have to ask ourselves as we move into this new year in 2024, are we going to trust in ourselves or are we going to trust in the Lord? Are we going to look to Him or are we going to look to ourselves? Are we going to trust worldly authority and political power and economic and financial stability, or are we going to trust in the divine promises of God? Will we look to our president and particular parties who wield their own self-serving power? Or are we going to trust in the Lord who rules and reigns and is actually using those powers to work for his good to will and to work for his good pleasure? As he continues to work out his redemptive plan, where is our faith going to lie? Where is our confidence going to be? In whom will it be? 
Will we trust that no matter what, there will always be a remnant? Despite the animosity, despite the growing hatred, are we going to trust that Christ has promised that he will build his church? Are we going to trust that he's committed to his people? Are we, are we going to trust that he loves us and is committed to us? He's going to provide for us and the gates of hell are not going to destroy the church. Well, the inevitable question is, how can we be sure? How can we be sure? And the answer is, there's been a sign. A sign's been given. But notice that before the sign was given, the Lord offered something really extraordinary and gracious. He gave Ahaz the opportunity to ask for a sign. He, he said, ask for a sign and confirm that what the Lord, what I have said is true. He could ask for anything, the whole down to Sheol and up, anything at all he could ask. But notice verse 12, Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign of any kind. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. He sounds really pious. I mean, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, but in fact, he's hiding behind it. Ultimately, what he was doing was revealing his lack of faith. If Ahaz had said, I will believe and put my trust in the Lord if and only if the Lord does this or that, then he would have been putting the Lord to the test. But it was God who was initiating this, not Ahaz. God initiated it and was giving Ahaz a chance to ask him to do anything in an effort to strengthen his faith. And by refusing, Ahaz was actually expressing the fact that he had already made a choice, and his choice was to not to trust in the Lord, but to trust in himself. It was decision time. And Ahaz proved that he was faithless. He had faith, he was faithless in the Lord. But he had faith, but his faith was only in himself and his own self-sufficiency. And notice Isaiah's response in verse 13. He doesn't say, and you are wearing me out and you are wearing your God out also. He says, you are wearing me out and you are wearing my God out, my God out also. And that's very important because he had, just, he had just told Ahaz to ask for a sign from his God or your God. And now he's speaking of God as his God, not Ahaz's God. Why? Because of his faithfulness. Isaiah was communicating that Isaiah, by his lack of faith, was proving that the Lord wasn't his God. And the consequences were profound. They were profound because Ahaz's failure was greater than just his own personal failure. It exhibited the failure, failure of the house of Judah as a whole. The house of Judah, over and over again, had not produced a perfect king. They hadn't produced any kind of golden age of any kind. What they had done is simply put human inadequacy on display time and time again. And the promise seemed to be in danger once again. How many times have we seen that throughout our our study of Genesis. Well, it continues. The promise just over and over seems to be in jeopardy. But what have we learned in our study of Genesis? 
Over and over we've learned that nothing and no one was going to nullify the promises of God. Look at verse 14. So Isaiah said, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The invitation to Ahaz to come up with a sign had been rescinded. Right? He, and because he had chosen not to believe, the Lord decided that he was going to send a sign himself. And it was a sign of judgment to Ahaz and a sign of hope for God's people. A son would be born. Now, there's a lot of debate regarding this sign because there doesn't seem to be a one-to-one immediate future prophetic fulfillment. See, the most obvious description of an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy is considered the son, Isaiah's son, born in chapter 8. But while that was a son being born, it wasn't, the son wasn't born of a virgin, and his name wasn't Emmanuel. However, there's not always a one-to-one immediate future fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Some things are often fulfilled in layers, okay? And I hope um, this illustration will help a little bit. Uh, when Winnie and I went to Colorado back in October, uh, we saw Pikes Peak. And I can't remember if it was arriving in Lamar or La Junta, uh, but we saw Pikes Peak. And it was the only thing that we could see, the, the only mountain we could see. But as we got closer and closer to it, more and more of the mountain, uh, mountains began to appear, but they all appeared in this one great long straight line. And Pikes Peak seemed to be the biggest all the while. Well, in the five years we, we live, and we had seen that before, and so you can see the same thing when you come into Lyman on I-70. Um, and we had seen that many times because of our traveling back and forth when we lived there for five years. And one of the things that we had never done over that five years was actually go to the top of Pikes Peak. And we did that this time. Um, and when we got to the top of Pikes Peak at the end of the week, you really get, a, you have a different perspective, Right? There's a different vantage point. You're at the top of Pikes Peak, and you see that there's more than just the front range. And you see that there are a lot of other 14ers. Really, there are 53 of them, or 58, depending on who you talk to and what they're measuring. And Pikes Peak is number 30 on the list in terms of elevation. How does that help us? Well, while the immediate fulfillment of the of Isaiah's prophecy is somewhat unclear, the future or ultimate fulfillment is crystal clear. For Ahaz, it does appear that it was Isaiah's son in chapter 8 that was the immediate fulfillment, right? He was the sign. But he also pointed forward to a greater and more ultimate fulfillment. 600 plus years later, after the oppression had continued, and even though the, the oppressors had changed and was now Rome, and no one from David's line had been on the throne. There was a son born. And from a post-cross vantage point, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew said that child, that child that was born was the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And that child was the Lord Jesus. Look at Matthew 1. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will be... She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's Jesus, whose birthday we celebrate tomorrow, who was and is, in the words of our of the Nicene Creed, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. He came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. It was and is this Son who was the promised one. The promised king from the line of David. The promised one from the line of Judah. The one who would sit on the throne eternally, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He was also the same child that was prophesied in Isaiah 9. The promised wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Beloved, the sign has come. The sign has come that proves God was not only a promise maker, but a promise keeper. And it is through this sign that the Lord Jesus Christ, through this sign, the Lord Jesus Christ, that a remnant will remain and be delivered. There are three thoughts I want to end with this morning. And the first is this one, do you know how fortunate we are to live at this point in history? I know we think a lot of, sometimes we think, oh, things have never been worse. But I want to flip that, I want to reframe that a minute. And I want us to think about how fortunate we are because we have so many more reasons to trust in God's promises than Ahaz had. Ahaz was looking, was, was called to trust in a promise. We've been called to trust in a promise that has been fulfilled. His son, Ahaz's sign that God was going to be with him was a child. Our sign was a child whose name was Emmanuel because he was and is God with us. God condescended and took on flesh, one person, two natures, truly God, truly man, and he dwelled among us, he tabernacled, and brought himself out and revealed himself in the open. And I know it's easy to get caught up in the threats. I I get it. I do as well. We get caught up in the circumstances, and and we again, it's really easy to trust in the political parties, and 
and to trust in other people and the acquisition of things and, and what other people think about us. We, we want their acceptance and we want their love because we think all of those things are going to provide security and peace. But brothers and sisters, these, all of these things are temporal and insufficient. Please don't spend another year and really don't spend another moment trusting in yourself or anyone or anything other than the Lord Jesus. He alone is trustworthy. His word alone is trustworthy. He alone is sufficient. His word alone is sufficient. Second, Jesus wasn't simply a sign that God gave to prove he could be trusted. His name was not only Emmanuel. The angel said his name was Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. You see, the problem was, is, and always has been more than geopolitical. The problem was, is, and has always been and always will be more than physical, military, or political oppression. The problem was, is, and always will be sin and separation from a holy God. And the fact that God sent a Savior speaks to two things. One, it says we are sinful. Our major threat or problem isn't outside of us. It's inside of us. Our threat or problem is one of condition. The threat is our, our hearts. We sin because we're sinners. And two, God sending a Savior says that we cannot solve the problem on our own by ourselves, because the answer to the threat or, or the problem is not within us, it's outside of us. We need help. We need someone to do what we cannot and have not been able to do and, and could not do for ourselves. You see, the incarnation that we're celebrating tells us or reminds us of at least four things. One, it should remind us of the severity of our problem. The drastic nature of a cure speaks directly to the severity of the ailment. Let me say that again. The drastic nature of the cure speaks directly to the severity of the ailment. So if the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being found or born in the likeness of men, and being, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What does that say about our problem? It's severe. Number two, it should remind us of the love and mercy of God. Because God has every right to leave us in our sin. God has every right to punish us for our sin. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Three, it should remind us that man's justification is secured by faith alone and Christ alone. Because think about it, if, if man could do anything 
no matter how small it might be, to save himself or justify himself or herself, would God have taken on flesh for the purpose of dying? Christ took on flesh, lived on our behalf, died in our place, because that was the only way by which we might be saved. Paul wrote, For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And four, it should remind us that any gifts we might get this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow pale in comparison to the gift and gifts we've already received in Christ. And if you struggle with that and if you're doubting that a little bit, I encourage you to just read Ephesians chapter 1 to begin with and read of the spiritual, every spiritual blessing that is yours in Christ Jesus. And the final concluding thought is this. Not only was his birth promised and fulfilled, and not only was his death promised and fulfilled, but his coming again has been promised, and it will be fulfilled. And you ask, when will that day be? And Jesus has answered that himself. He said, soon. I am coming soon. And of course, to that we say, come Lord Jesus. And as we wait, let's anticipate and prepare for that coming. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. Meditate on it. Hide it in our hearts. And bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. For your glory and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.